This episode of the Royal Ramble is dedicated to the memories of Ole Anderson, Mike, Virgil Jones, and Paul the Butcher Vachon. my ramblers and welcome to another weekend closer to wrestlemania and it is showtime folks we are just over a month away from the big show no it isn't paul white but just the granddaddy of them all no big deal that curtain will open for the 40th time on april 6th and 7th but before we get there it'll be the final curtain for one steve borden who is calling it a career after 39 years and for a man to remain in a top position in an industry that is always changing is impressive in itself, and he's done that for nearly all of those 40 years. I will do my very best to provide a full career retrospective of the man later in the show, as well as a preview of AEW Revolution, which takes place tonight, but right now, let's get into the news of the week. As noted at the start of the show, the wrestling world was struck with multiple tragedies this week as Ole Anderson, Mike Jones, and Paul Vachon have all sadly passed away. Anderson is best known for being an original member of the Four Horsemen. He also experienced a great deal of success in tag teams with both Gene and Arn Anderson, as well as a booker and trainer at the WCW Power Plant. He suffered from multiple sclerosis over over a decade, which led to some memory loss and decreased mobility and he passed away this week at the age of 81. Jones probably achieved his greatest success as the silent but violent bodyguard for the million-dollar man Ted DiBiase during the WWE's golden era. He later joined DiBiase in WCW as Vincent, a member of the New World Order, and as recent as about four years ago, he made a single appearance in AEW as Soul Train Jones. Unbeknownst to many wrestling fans, he was battling colon cancer for the last couple of years and passed away due to complications from the strokes and dementia at the age of 72. Vachon was probably the least known of the three, at least to modern wrestling fans, though he was a Canadian wrestling legend. He competed in the WWF, NWA, AEWA, and Georgia Championship Wrestling and was the adoptive father of former pro wrestler Luna Vachon. He passed away this week at the age of 86. AEW star Kenny Omega is still out of in-ring action due to diverticulitis, but he's been keeping busy outside of the ring as he will soon be hosting a launch stream for the upcoming Final Fantasy VII Rebirth. Following recent updates in the Vince McMahon sexual misconduct lawsuit, former WWE talent Nick Kaniski was the latest to come forward with his own accusation. Nick is the son of wrestling legend Gene Kaniski and claimed that shortly after he joined the WWF in the late 80s, he was propositioned by WWE executive Terry Garvin, who was VP of operations at the time. Kaniski went on to say that Garvin would ask him to allow him to perform oral sex on Kaniski with the promise of helping to advance his career. Kaniski reportedly brought this incident to Vince McMahon's attention, and McMahon allegedly said that he'd take care of it, 
but after more and more incidents occurred between Kaniski and Garvin, which led to Kaniski to believe McMahon never spoke with Garvin. Kaniski even thought he was being punished for refusing Garvin's sexual advances and eventually parted ways with the company. The injury bug continues to affect the WWE locker room. Piper Niven is the latest to join the injured list. She's been out of action for several weeks due to a broken hand suffered in a match sometime in January. Tokyo Sports confirmed this week that stardom talent Julia will be leaving the company once her contract expires next month. Julia is expected to work for former stardom booker Rossi Agawa's new promotion, at least in the short term, though it is rumored to be joining the WWE roster at some point in 2024. It's been reported that Sean Spears, who made a surprise return to NXT this past week as Ty Dillinger, had supposedly requested his release from AEW last December. Former WWE, WCW, and TNA creative personnel Vince Russo announced via X this week that he's been diagnosed with diabetes. Following his release from the hospital, former wrestling star Billy Jack Haynes has officially been placed under arrest in connection to the murder of his wife and charged with second-degree murder. CMLL announced that they will be putting together an all-women's show to take place March 8th, which is International Women's Day. TNA announced during Impact that they have officially signed former MLW champion Alexander Hammerstone following his debut with the company at Hard to Kill in January. Hammerstone is scheduled to work at a sacrifice event next weekend in a rematch against Josh Alexander. And that is your news of the week. I mentioned in the previous segment that AEW star Sting will wrap up his near 40-year career tonight at AEW Revolution, so for right now, let us wind back the clock and take a look at quite a stellar career. And in closing, let me say this, in all my years in this sport, my greatest opponent in this company has been Sting. So tonight, if we're going out, if we're going out on a high note, the nature boy wants you right here because that's right. He wants Sting here. Sting. Sting. My greatest opponent. Sting. It's your last chance. Your last chance to be. He was born Steve Borden on March 20th, 1959, but better known to wrestling fans as Sting. But who is the man behind the paint? Well, it's not the musician from the police. He didn't carry around a billy club or handcuffs, just a big black bat that he introduced to many an opponent, especially during WCW's glory years. But decades before that, even before the bat ever came into play, 
He was known as Flash on the independent circuit, starting out in the business in 1985. He wrestled for a company called All California Championship Wrestling, where he first met and teamed with a youngster named Jim Helwig, more famously or infamously, depending on your perspective, known as the Ultimate Warrior. They had very similar looks, and their careers nearly ran parallel, at least through the 80s and into the early 90s. While Helwig was a lot bigger in stature, many agreed that Borden was the better all-around talent. They teamed for the next couple of years and eventually found success as the Blade Runners in the UWF, at which point Borden officially changed his ring name to Sting. The team parted ways in the latter part of the decade, with Helwig going to the WWF and Borden joining Jim Crockett Promotions, each achieving single success in their rookie years with their respective companies. Quite possibly, Borden's best and most famous match ever took place at the first Clash of the Champions in 1988, which ran head-to-head with that year's WrestleMania, when Borden wrestled the Nature Boy Ric Flair to a time-limit draw. From that point on, Sting was seen as the face or franchise of WCW. He was all over magazines, commercials, video games, you name it, his face was on it. As a young child at the time, I was really only watching the WWF because of WCW's more mature storylines and characters, but I still knew some of the major players there. And I would see pictures of Sting and nearly every pro wrestling magazine I picked up. I remember seeing his action figure in every toy store, and his face was on the cover of almost every wrestling video game. I started watching WCW on a more regular basis in my preteen years. By then, Sting had changed his look a little bit. He got rid of the bleach blonde surfer look and dyed his hair dark brown, which was probably his natural color. He was a huge part of the Monday Night War against Vince McMahon's WWF, and when the NWO was born in the summer of 96, WCW used that angle to repackage Sting as the top babyface in the company, and had him change his look entirely into the Crow character that we see today, though it was a lot darker back then. For those unfamiliar, there was a popular movie in the early 90s called The Crow, which starred Bruce Lee's son Brandon, and Sting kind of adopted that look and character. In fact, I hear there is a remake of the movie in the works set to star Bill Skarsgård. Anyway, Sting took the character to new heights, and I was impressed that WCW actually had the patience to wait about a year to build to a match between Sting and the top heel at the time, Hollywood Hulk Hogan. The match took place at that year's Starcade, and while many believe that the event started the downward spiral of WCW, it was the first time in almost two years that a WCW fan favorite actually got one up on the NWO, despite the terrible finish. The following summer, Sting joined the NWO rival faction, the Wolfpack, changing his look yet again. I never felt that it ever really worked for him, nor, nor did his association with that or any other group, and apparently he agreed, so he was back to the black and white getup a few months later. He got to compete in the last match of the final Nitro in 2001, and I thought that might have also been his last match, and yet here we are over 20 years later. He joined Total Nonstop Action in 2006 and significantly helped that company stay relevant, working with and trying to get some of the younger talent over, including AJ Styles, Samoa Joe, Christian Cage, and Kurt Angle. After decades of refusing to go up north, Sting finally entered the WWE in the fall of 2014. He didn't have a long run with the company, but a memorable enough one to compete in a high-profile match at WrestleMania vs. Triple H, a world title match vs. Seth Rollins, and finally enter the WWE Hall of Fame in 2016. He was the first person to be inducted into both the WWE and TNA Hall of Fame. 
In December of 2020, he debuted with All Elite Wrestling and formed a tag team with his young protege, Darby Allen, whom he will team with against the Young Bucks tonight. And with that said, let's talk about Revolution. Given that I've spoken about him for most of the show, let's keep the focus on Sting and start by talking about his last match. I only hope that it is the last match on the show. It definitely should be the main event, though I don't think it's been promoted that way on television. I know it was Dealer's choice and that Sting apparently handpicked the Young Bucks as his final opponents, but that is why talent should never be allowed to book their own matches. To be honest, I found the match selection and the build for this one very underwhelming, especially for a match of this magnitude. Ultimately, I think the final image of the show should be Sting leaving on a high note before riding off into the sunset, so to speak. And I think the best way to do that is for he and Darby to retain their titles, and he just retires as champions. And then they have Darby either vacate the titles on the following Dynamite, or selecting a new tag team partner. But I think this is the way to go. I don't think a win here would benefit the Bucks in any way. The match is also a tornado match now. I'm not sure why that's important, but it should be fun. The three-man meat match, or whatever it was called, has now been scrapped for reasons unknown, though I suppose it was also unknown why that match was ever booked in the first place. The current rumor is that the plan was to add a few other participants, but some of which were unavailable, and thus the match was changed to an eight-man scramble featuring the three original three participants, Wardlow, Lance Archer, and Powerhouse Hobbs, and they've added Chris Jericho, Hook, Brian Cage, Dante Martin, and the newcomer Magnus. The match just feels like a poor excuse to get everyone on the card with no real story attached to it and nothing at stake as far as I know. I think someone like Magnus should be highlighted in it as he's the least known to the AEW audience, but that has never been a concern for Tony Khan, so who knows. The Don Callis family has been building a lot of momentum lately, so I think this is a match for Hobbs to win. I really don't know who benefits from a win here either way. Speaking of the Don Callis family, two of their platinum members, Will Ospreay and Kanoski Takeshita, will go at it in one-on-one -on -one action. The reasoning for this match didn't make a whole lot of sense, but given that this is Osprey's first official match in the company, I would say it's probably a lock that he's going over, and then the Callis family starts feuding with him in the coming months, as he sort of becomes Kenny Omega's replacement for the time being. Another match that I'm very much looking forward to is the tag team bout between FTR and the Blackpool Combat Club. Look, these guys are always having great matches with each other. My only thing is that the match really is no different from their previous encounters. I find it odd that despite the match ending in a draw the previous time around, that they didn't extend the time limit or make it a 30-minute Ironman or something, but that st could still change between now and showtime. I think FTR will pick up the win here as they ultimately need it more, since they've been losing every other encounter between the two teams on television lately. The BCC will continue their night in one-on-one -on -one action with Brian Danielson taking on Eddie Kingston. Another match that should be good but has no real hook to it, I'm not really invested in the idea of Danielson losing and having to shake Kingston's hand. Firstly, it kind of suggests to me that Danielson will lose, and also, it's an unusual stipulation in a kayfabe environment. I think they have a competitive match, and Danielson ends up holding up his end of the deal and shaking Kingston's hand. And then, like the ending of the Hogan vs. Rock match at WrestleMania, you have Claudio and Moxley turn on Danielson, and then he starts feuding with his own teammates. Christian Cage was supposed to put up his TNT title against Adam Copeland in one-on-one -on -one action, but as we all know, Copeland had to pull out of the match due to injury, and has been replaced by Daniel Garcia. I'm still not completely sold on Garcia. 
I just find him bland and boring, and he's average in the ring by AEW standards. That said, Christian usually gets the best out of everyone, and I don't expect this to be the exception. I'm sure they'll have a fine match, and I think even though Copeland is injured, he will make his presence felt and play into the finish, which will ultimately lead to Garcia winning the title. But then Christian can always win it back either at the next pay-per-view or more likely on television. Another title will be up for grabs in the mid-card with Orange Cassidy defending his international title against Roderick Strong. I almost kind of want to root for Cassidy here because I would suggest that if he retains, the whole devil angle is dead. This has been one of the worst ideas that AEW has ever come up with, and it just continues to get worse and worse as time goes on. I actually think Roddy will win the title here in a very good match, after multiple interference by the Undisputed Kingdom, which is another terrible name. The group definitely needs momentum on their side. I believe Taven and Bennett are still ROH champs, so this is just another title to add to their bags. Why they're not targeting the world title or wreaking havoc on the rest of the roster is beyond me. It just makes them seem a whole lot less threatening as a heel faction. I've said for months that Timeless Tony Storm is the best thing that AEW has ever come up with, but I'm honestly kind of getting bored with her now. I kind of feel like she's been overexposed, and it's usually the same thing every week. I'm expecting a good match between her and Deanna, but I don't think it's the time to take the belt off Tony. Though Deanna shouldn't be losing her first big match either, so they've kind of painted themselves into a corner here. I think Deanna will have the match won with the Queen's Gambit, but Mariah will distract the ref while Tony is tapping out. Deanna releases the hold to deal with Mariah, and then Tony levels her with a foreign object passed into her by Luther to keep the title. Where Deanna goes from here is anyone's guess, but this seems to be the case for AEW women's matches, where if you aren't involved in the title picture, then you simply are not used on Dynamite. The world title picture is kind of getting interesting with the triple threat between Samoa Joe, the defending champion, Hangman Adam Page, and Swerve Strickland. It's interesting the way they chose to do the double turn between Page and Swerve, but I ultimately think it was the right call. This should be a strong match, but I don't think it's ever a good idea for a champion to lose a title in a multi-man match. So I think Swerve will have the match won on Joe, but Hangman will try to steal the win, they both end up getting in each other's way, and Joe takes advantage, making Paige tap to the Kokina clutch. I have no doubt that Swerve will be world champion in 2024, but I don't think it's the right time or match. So that is Revolution. Up next on the AEW pay-per-view calendar is Double or Nothing at the end of May. Here is my fantasy forecast of match predictions. I'm not sure what Adam Cole's injury status is or will be by then, but I think he's in the main event versus Samoa Joe for the AEW world title. Christian Cage versus Adam Copeland in a ladder match for the TNT title. Tony Storm versus Thunder Rosa for the AEW women's title. Mercedes Monet versus Deanna Perrazzo in the tournament finals of the women's Owen Hart Cup. Roderick Strong versus Daniel Garcia for the international title. The Young Bucks versus FTR versus Claudio and Moxley versus Danielson and Darby in a four-way for the tag team titles. Swerve Strickland versus Hangman Adam Page in a barbed wire steel cage match. Will Ospreay versus Sammy Guevara in the tournament finals of the Men's Owen Hart Cup. So there you have it. I'm out of here for another week. I will return next week to chat all about the weekly news and the continued buildup for WrestleMania, as well as the full rundown of AEW Revolution. Until then, I leave you with an 8B. See ya!